Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On the program today, Utah State University alum Lars Peter Hansen, one of three Americans recently named as a recipient of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics. Professor Hansen is a Cache Valley native. He now teaches at University of Chicago. He'll share his feelings on winning the Nobel Prize. He'll discuss his research, the recent housing bubble, and government regulation of markets. Later in the program, NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick talks about Rupert Murdoch, the Australian business magnate who may be the most powerful media figure ever. In his new book, Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires, Fulkenflick explains how the man behind Britain's take-no-prisoners tabloids, who reinvigorated Roger Ailes by backing his vision for Fox News, who gave a new swagger to the New York uh, Post, the new style to the Wall Street Journal, survived recent scandals and the true cost of that survival. That's coming up later in the program. First up, my recent conversation with uh, Lars Peter Hansen, as I mentioned, uh, uh, was announced he'll be a recipient of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics. Lars Peter Hansen is a Utah State University alum and cash Valley native. I reached Professor Hansen in Chicago. I'm sure people will be curious to know, since most of us will never win a Nobel Prize, what, uh, how did you learn about this? It was about 5.45 or 5.50 in the morning on, on, on a Monday morning. It's the, the last three weeks have been a blur, but I don't know, roughly three weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago, I got a phone call and it kind of fully sunk in by the time I went to the third person because the third person was a name that I uh, of a person that I knew and recognized. We had done a lot of a lot of work together. His name's Torsten Pearson. So by the time he got in the line and congratulated me, I guess I was convinced this might actually be happening. So, so you're, you're awakened in the morning, unless you're a very early riser. So uh, th- these are friends calling you, or is this committee no, calling? No, no, no. This is uh, uh, Torsten Pearson, who I who I know. Uh, he's on the selection committee, but he oh, I see. Uh, I, I, he and I have been known each other professionally. We're both associated with the Econometric Society for a few years. Um, he was president of the society the year before I was, so I, so I got to know him then. But he's on the selection committee, so he got on the phone to congratulate me. Then I said, wow, like, I, I guess this is the real thing. Um, I actually am an early riser. Uh, I was about to leave to go exercise. Um, uh, prior to that, I, my wife and I acquired a puppy a few months ago, and the puppy had to go out. So I, I had already finished <laughs> my dog walking and was about ready to leave to go exercise. Hmm. Amazing. So, and, and there's probably no, I don't know, there's probably no advanced word. It's, it's a surprise. It's a surprise, absolutely. And as you say, the succeeding weeks have been a blur, I, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, the last, yeah, it's... Um, a couple of different things. I, I've already committed myself to some conferences, so I've been uh, I've been going to a couple of conferences since then. And um, then there was you know, a new set of demands on my on my scheduling and trying to keep trying to figure out uh, how to get ready for a, some events coming forward. Um, my challenge right now is I'm supposed to write a paper for the uh, prior to going to Stockholm, so mm. that, that will be presented in Stockholm. Now, do you give a speech? Yes, I will be given. I think it's a. I think I was told about thirty minutes, and then there's also a paper that gets published in one of the professional journals of economics. The morning that the prize was announced, within an hour of the announcement, one journal contacted me and uh, and the other uh, prize winners, offering a journal space. And then more recently, a second one is also offered. So it, it's. Uh, but but to get a paper published, you got you actually have to write it. So that's a challenge right now. And what are you supposed to say in this paper? Just just sum up your work, or what do you, what do you do? Yeah, so it's, it, the guidelines are uh, flexible. That they certainly want you to tie things back to uh, your award-winning work. 
some of that work was done quite a while ago. So if I if I just summarize that, it would be kind of boring. So I'll I'm uh, I'm toying with different ideas right now. What reaction have you gotten from friends in Utah? Awesome, very nice ones. Um, I got phone calls from two of my professors at Utah State. Neither one of them are uh, currently on the faculty, I believe. One is Doug Alder, who lives in southern Utah, and uh, the other was uh, Bartel Jensen, who I believe still lives in Cache Valley and has had long-standing ties with Utah State University. Doug Alder taught me European history, but he had a big influence on me. It's, it, it would be surprising you would think that someone from who, who taught honors European history would uh, would have a lasting input. But I remember talking to him one-on-one, and he kind of said, said, you have a set of unique skills. Kind of do something special. Just don't go imitate others. Kind of uh, play to your own special strengths. And uh, it's something I often pay attention to and often think about. It was, uh, I'm sure he didn't mean it as something um, completely profound, but it certainly is at the, at that time of my life, it, it, it really got me thinking. And uh, Bartel Jensen was the one who got me ready for economics. I didn't take an economics class until my junior year at Utah State. And then I had to go through an accelerated program because they wanted me in the PhD program at Utah State by my senior year. So I, uh, Bartel kind of guided all that and, and, and helped me get into graduate school. Yeah, I was interested to, to learn you, you're an economics minor. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, so my major was mathematics and political science. There's a press release, of course, from Utah State University. Uh, President Stan Albrecht congratulates you and uh, the, the current dean of the uh, College of Business. Uh, the, yeah. the Huntsman School, I guess you, you went to school with him? Yeah, he and I were classmates, and I got to know him quite well, actually. My junior and senior year, we knew each other well. We'd been in up classes together and everything. Yeah, Doug Anderson. Yeah. Um, some people will, uh, will, a lot of people, I think, in Cache Valley will remember your father, uh, Garth Hansen, yeah. biochemist, a former right. USU provost. Uh-huh. And your your mother still still is in St. George? She is. So I imagine you've gotten some reaction from St. George area. At least from your mother. Uh, yeah, some, sure, for sure. There was a, a very charming interview of a, one of the St. George newspapers with my mother. It was a really, it was, it was one of the most fun ones that I read. How do you think this will change your life, Nobel Prize? You'll go forward doing the research you were doing. Yeah. Uh, this, and it brings some money with it, yeah. Prize does. And, of course, the prestige, maybe open some doors. That, uh, I don't know if you need doors open at this point in your career. So, I guess, as far as I can tell, I might have uh, more opportunities to give big speeches. We'll see how I do with that. I'm not looking for lots of those. But, uh, um, you know, I I haven't really thought through what impact it's going to have on me. I, in many respects, I suspect not a lot. I remained very interested in research, and I've been very proud of the graduate students that I've had the uh, privilege to work with. My last count, I've advised close to 60 PhD dissertations. And if there's things that I can do to help nurture a field along that I care a lot about, then that will be enjoyable. I saw a headline. This is from a a Chicago magazine. They referred to you as the forgotten among the three. I don't know if you've been hearing hearing this because your two colleagues, the two two other recipients this year, sort of represent different ways of thinking of markets. Eugene Fama, your colleague there at University of Chicago, is uh, famous uh, for the efficient markets hypothesis at least associated with that. And uh, then Professor Schiller over at Yale, sort of uh, his work was adjusting that, poking holes in, in some of that and, and looking at uh, how human behavior and psychology plays a role. And then uh, and some are speculating that the, uh, the committee wanted to sort of 
mash those two ideas together and uh, at least to uh, see how we've advanced. I wonder what your thought is. I'm sure you've been reading the press here and, and how this is being received. Yeah, at some point in time, I've had uh, uh, people that I know well told me to stop reading the press because I'll just get frustrated, which is, there's a little bit of truth to that. So I, the truth is I haven't really followed the newspaper stories all that much, kind of by choice. I'm certainly well aware of this this uh, uh, in the media tension, which you're referring to, because it also shows up when various people call me up and ask me questions and the like. I think it's a little bit of a misrep. I, I, I think it reflects a little bit of of theater, but I think it's not. There's a sense in which it's not completely accurate either. So I, I can um, I can certainly talk that through if you like. Um, of course, I'm more interested in talking about me that my own research than research of others. But um, yeah, if, if you wouldn't mind, you kind of reacting to the two yeah. two people who received the prize, and then definitely I want to hear about about your work. So if you really look at the research accomplishments, my own work has actually, be, actually been influenced by both people. And there's a variety of similarities. So if if I think back, uh, one of my early papers that uh, applying some some statistical methods I'd been working on was a, a joint work with Ken Singleton, and we we certainly were very influenced by an earlier paper by um, Sandy Grossman and uh, and and uh, and Bob Schiller. Uh, we thought we had a little bit different and uh, and a little bit better way to look at things, uh, but but we're very influenced by their thinking uh, or or by their modeling. Um, on exchange rates, I did some work with uh, Bob Heydrich, under which kind of the standard model of the day linking current forward exchange rates with two future spot exchange rates. We we provided some empirical evidence showing that that the model people were really embracing had had some empirical gaps in it. And the truth is that 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 uh, uh, a few years later, Gene Fama followed up with some uh, similar findings and, and kind of pushed it in, in some new directions as well. There's a sense in which all of us have been, been trying to you know, take some of the simple models of the day and, and, and exposing what their weaknesses are. And the re- reason we do that is in order to figure out how to build better models. So Bob Schiller was talking about how there seems to be too much volatility in stock markets relative to fundamentals. That was some of his early, you know, early contributions. And that's led to lots, lots of people understanding how that type of phenomenon might actually exist. So Gene Fama, actually, some of his most important work with Ken French, it took a kind of the, one of the reigning models of a couple of decades ago called the capital asset pricing model, and it showed why it was, there were empirical gaps in it and kind of produced an alternative instead. Mm-hmm. So I think we're all about using empirical evidence in, in ways that are revealing that help us to think better about how to build models. So this is kind of a long-winded point, but the thing is that Economists build models. Our models are not perfect. Our models are simplifications, and we kind of know they're simplifications. There's a sense in which you write down a so-called efficient markets model with with fully rational people. That that's an abstraction. So in some very narrowly defined sense, it's going to be wrong because that's what it means to be a model. But the problem is there's a relatively small number of ways that you can kind of have these – efficient rational models and there's a large ways you can once you throw in irrationality there's a large large number of ways which you can imagine people being irrational and so it doesn't yield to it's not really so amenable or it's not even it becomes interesting to me when these models have actual predictions that i can go and look and compare directly to data so it's kind of debate i think is a little bit there's yeah i understand it's good theater but i but i also find it a little bit frustrating because it it seems to miss this fact that we're all about models and what's wrong with models and try to and how to make models work better and the distinctions between efficient versus inefficient markets well I can only analyze that once I have a very precise notion of what it means to be in a, an efficient market it's going to be efficient market plus other stuff in order for me to you know engage in tests of it a lot has been said about how your work the work of the three of you 
has spoken to bubbles. You know, we had yeah. the we had the famous housing bubble. Yeah. Has our understanding been advanced by your work in, in terms of how we understand a very famous bubble like the one we just had? I suppose that the person who's been most in the bubbles has been Schiller of the three of us. There's a tricky thing about bubbles. There's two points to make about bubbles. First of all, some economist models of bubbles, bubbles are good and not bad. That might surprise you, but that's just the case. There's some very important models in economics in which the existence of bubbles is actually socially productive, not socially detrimental. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. So to really understand whether a bubble is good or bad, you've got to really have a very much more precise model of a bubble other than, well, there's some gradual buildup in prices, and after a while, there's a big drop. I mean, we certainly know that, that, that prices go up and down. And, and it's, from an empirical standpoint, we're much better at looking at time series and say, well, there's a bubble in the past than we are in terms of saying, well, here we are now. Maybe we're part of a bubble, but we don't really know when it's going to burst or we really don't know what's, when it's going to turn on us and like that. So even if you're kind of like these models of bubbles, there's some, and I think they're intriguing, there's a real challenge to actually detect them empirically. And that's relevant for policymaking. I think it's a little bit dangerous to imagine to the design of monetary policy with its, you know, a prime target to so-called prick bubbles and the like, but just because it's so hard to actually in real time detect them. You're saying there are some good bubbles, or, or bubbles can be good, or, or yeah. it's, okay. So on the very micro level, if you know, if, a, if I'm so proceeding, just I can as tell a person, you an example of a so-called bubble that says that that, that that's going to be good. Yeah. In your wallet, you might have a piece of paper that is by itself intrinsically worthless. It could be a dollar bill or something, or a five dollar bill, or a ten dollar bill. Yeah, I do have that in my wallet. So you yeah. so. So why does that get bet, bet, value? That's well, it's just a piece of paper. That's a bubble, mm-hmm. and it's socially valuable because it facilitates transactions. Because it's a, if everyone agreed that this piece of paper was worthless, then nobody would take it. But there's kind of this common agreement that, well, I'm confident that I, that I can use this, and other people are confident that people that, that that if they take your money, that they can pass it on to somebody else. But part of the underpinning of that you're saying is is we all agree that it's worth something. Yeah, but that's part of what goes on in the bubble, too. Mm-hmm. For At least for a while, people agree that something has value, even though you can't tie it down to the basic underlying fundamental ingredients. It's just a piece of paper. Now, there's great harm that comes when a bubble bursts. Sure. On an individual level, you know. Yeah, so, so, so people are certainly concerned about bubbles because of the um, inducement of volatility and the like, and, and it throws more uncertainty into the economic system. And the example I just gave you, as long as we're all in this regime where where we agree that this paper money has value, then there's no, we're presuming there's no uncertainty attached to it. And so the bubbles become, the ones that people are, I guess, are most fear are tied into the fact that there's unknown components to them and that and, and there's, uh, uh, it throws in some more volatility down the road. Now, of course, we're all in the market uh, these days. We're, you know, through the retirements tied up in mutual funds and, yeah. and the like. One of the things that's being mentioned coming out of the work of, of you three uh, gentlemen is uh, the idea that um, if you just put your money in a in an index, that that'll do better than you know somebody who's so-called quote unquote a professional, and the, and the net effect of that has been uh, I guess a good thing reducing fees on on those mutual funds. My question is, since we're all sort of in the market uh, now, where have we advanced to in, in terms of our understanding on how the markets price their assets and on how markets work? That's a very interesting question. So to me, one of the, let me be clear, the thing that really fascinates me is the connections between financial markets and the macroeconomy. I'm interested in what are the 
kind of overall economy-wide impacts of uh, you know financial market turbulence, or or how does what goes on in the underlying economy get reflected in uh, financial markets? So it's that linkages between the so-called macroeconomy and financial markets that I'm particularly interested in. And there are gaps in our knowledge there that are actually really critical. So if we really want to think about regulating financial markets for social good, then that's that then understanding this linkage becomes really, really critical. Now, from the standpoint of where we stand along some of those dimensions, um, so what part of people do in the field of empirical finance, of finance that's related to looking at data, is they characterize what are called risk-return trade-offs. So we look at how much people have to be compensated in the marketplace for being exposed to certain types of risk. With a theory being that, roughly speaking, that you know, it's just certain types of risk when you're exposed to it, then in order for you to be have to bear that risk, you you have to receive some type of compensation, of some form or another, and, and then we kind of characterize what that compensation should be. Now, what it seems coming out of the empirical evidence that we have is that risk return trade off, uh, that's uh, how investors in the marketplace trades off risk and return, fluctuates over time in very important ways. In ways that it's that that's say in bad times, in bad macroeconomic times, there seems to be a much steeper trade-off between risk and return than in good times. And trying to understand what really drives that, how that fluctuation between risk and return changes as you go over a business cycle or or, or as the macroeconomy changes, um, remains an interesting research puzzle. I mean, we have some models of it, but the models are, at least to my taste, are really not fully satisfactory yet. Yet, I think understanding that's really critical if we're going to really think through the linkages between financial markets and the macroeconomy. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're uh, hearing a conversation I recently had with uh, uh, Lars Peter Hansen. He's a Utah State University alum, a Cache Valley native, and it was recently announced that he is a recipient, along with two other gentlemen, of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics. We've been discussing his research and uh, the housing bubble. We'll get into talking about government regulation of markets. I'll ask Lars Peter Hansen if he has any caution for policymakers on using economic research in making public policy. More with Lars Peter Hansen later in the program. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik talks about Rupert Murdoch. That's the subject of his most recent book. More following a break. Did you know that positive coping strategies can help slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So, if you're a caregiver, take care of yourself, count your blessings, and ask for help when you need it. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Oh my god. One thing I really like in a radio story. What's back there? Nothing. It looks empty. No, there's someone living back there. Is a mystery. I'm not going back there. There's somebody's hair. There's a head in there. There's a shrunken head right there. Mysteries explained each week. This American life. It's Santa Claus. Resident Evil? Sunday afternoons at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 2. Introducing 100% whole grain bread with raisins, oatmeal date bread, millet pan loaf, and ciabatta buns. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It was recently announced that uh, Utah State University alum and Cache Valley native Lars Peter Hansen, who now teaches at University of Chicago, will uh, be a recipient of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics. And uh, we've been discussing his research, the recent housing bubble. We'll get into talking about government regulation of markets. Later on in the program, NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik talks about his new book, Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. Uh, thanks for listening. More now, my recent conversation with Lars Peter Hansen. I'm wondering, and I know you've been asked this form of this question before. I'm reading a, a Time magazine interview with you. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in this as well. Um, it seems to me you, you can't separate economics from politics or politics from economics. I don't know if you can or should you. And I guess the key question is, how would you caution politicians in using economic research in creating public policy? So obviously economists doing kind of scientific research can't control whether people either use or abuse their research in terms of in the political realm. Um, But I think the following is important to keep in mind that, and this is going to be the statistician in me that's going to be speaking. It's important to know what evidence, what it tells us about economic models in the economy and and where evidence is not so revealing. In the places in which you'll see people writing like some of the biggest divergence of opinions among economists are going to be occurring in places where the empirical evidence is so weak that it's hard to uh, discriminate between viewpoints. And so individuals' guesses and perspectives come into play here in ways that are hard to dispute with data just because the data is not very strong. It's very important that we have good characterizations of what that knowledge base is, kind of what's the evidence that we have full confidence in and where is the evidence weak. The problem is in the political realm is people don't want to talk about uncertainty. If I go and I kind of start telling some politician, well, we really don't know the answer to that question based on our basic evidence, hardcore evidence, uh, the politician is going to want to run to somebody else who's going to assert some incredibly confident opinion instead. And it would be much better if we could have public policy discussions that acknowledge the fact that we don't know everything, that in fact we, there are gaps in our knowledge, and, and in spite of that, we still have to do prudent policymaking. Uh, there's a danger in designing policies that overreact to insights that are really not well-grounded, either theoretically or, or empirically, and are instead based on very uh, rough conjectures. And I think this is quite important for a lot of different policymaking contexts. So that's the one issue that I, I would be concerned about, or, or at least I would hope we can get more mature in our policy discussions, that we can understand that a discipline like economics doesn't have every, everything figured out, uh, as all scientific disciplines typically don't have everything figured out. It may be more obvious in economics that we don't, but it's, it's, um, but that doesn't mean that uh, we can't have useful policy discussions. It just means that policy discussions have to be premised on an acknowledgement of imperfect knowledge. The thing that I think is relevant in this political realm is the fact that there's a lot of economic problems that kind of have long-term consequences. And I think there's a, often a temptation among politicians to take short-term perspectives on long-term problems, and, and that can be a, a serious issue. One example under this topic that you gave Time Magazine was, was the whole debate on climate change. We have uncertainty. You yeah. say it may be prudent to act now because it may be more costly to act later. Critical to recognize we're designing policies, quoting you, based on limited knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I think the same thing holds true in financial oversight and regulation. We have very limited knowledge on how financial market turbulence 
plays out in the macroeconomy. Sometimes it plays out in big ways, sometimes small ways. Many economists were caught by surprise that problems in the housing market had such a substantial spillover to the entire macroeconomy. Yet, you know, there's other type of financial disruptions that don't. So we have to respect the fact that we have to design policies. Uh, our policy-making framework has to reflect the fact that there's, there's some gaps in our knowledge base. You're also quoted here in the, in the article, they, they asked you how to explain to the layperson your contributions to economics. Yeah. You talk about how it, you've made advances in the fact that we can, well, I'll just quote you, part of what I was recognized for was this notion that you can do something without knowing without doing everything. Yeah. In other words, uh, we, we tend to respond to, it's natural to respond to these grand models. Yeah. Maybe expand on that. You can, but you can, you can do things in specific areas without having to have a grand model, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So the particular area of interest that I've done a lot of research in is this linkages between financial markets and the macroeconomy. So one possibility would be the only way to study that linkage is we've got to have a full-blown model of the macroeconomy and at the same time, uh, a rich model of, of kind of how financial markets work and then and then how they interact. And, and that kind of is a precursor. You know, we, we've got to put all of our cards on the table before we can go out and start analyzing things and asking questions about the mechanisms linking them. And that is a hard task. Uh, and that's a lot to ask to do in a credible way. We can make up a bunch of stuff and do it that way. But it's also nice to be able to say, well, suppose we put to a side some of the modeling ingredients and just try to target a piece of that without having a, can, can we somehow study the, the interactions between financial markets and macroeconomy without having, having a fully, completely specified model of the macroeconomy, and how might we do that? So that's kind of what I mean by doing something without having to do everything. I was building on, a, on an older econometrics literature that addresses that subject. It's, it, and so this is an old insight within the econometrics that, that, that it's possible to do this. And um, my aim was to push this in directions uh, that, that were useful in some of the interesting models going forward. Are the big models useful? Should we be putting energy into the big models or, or into the… That's a good question. <laughs> so there's an age-old debate in a, whole, a variety of subjects about there's these trade-offs between building a really complicated model that it's really not very transparent. They become difficult to analyze, become difficult to solve. They start looking like black boxes. But on the other hand, they seem to have a certain type of richness in terms of their predictions versus a model that's simpler, that's more transparent, that we can understand how it works, but we know it's, it's missing some stuff. My own prejudice has always been more towards the simpler models. Uh, those are the ones I understand better and understand how they work better. And, and, and I'm always a bit skeptical of the larger black box models. But I think in truth, we kind of need both. We need, uh, for some purposes, we need that extra complexity. But we also need simpler prototypes that, would, that, that we can really fully understand and that are better vehicles for communication. But I think for a lot of purposes, using simple models in kind of sophisticated ways is a very useful, is my own prejudice, and is a very valuable way to proceed. And it is the prediction, the correct predictions that we need, right? If you're going to run a business, you, you want to correctly predict what's going to happen. If you're a person investing, you want to correctly predict, but it's, that's just so, it's, it's very hard. So let me just modify that a little bit. It's not so much just correct. It's that um, if I build a really complicated model, the problem with me building a really complicated model is it's going to require a whole lot of inputs. And the more inputs I put in there, the more potential that there's some fragility in that. And some of these inputs I'm not going to know very much about. And sooner or later, that's going to also undermine the, the ability of that, of that complicated model to, uh, to predict because it's going to require too many inputs. 
Now, a simpler model is going to typically require fewer inputs. I might have more reliable inputs, but then it's also going to be making mistakes because it's making bigger mistakes, maybe, because of simplification. So the key is to design these simple models that tolerate some mistakes along some dimensions, but uh, still to be good approximations. There's lots of examples where people show that simple models outpredict the complicated ones just because of the uh, complicated ones that require way too many inputs. But on the other hand, if you really want to predict a very rich set of things, like suppose you want to predict the impact of climate change across spatially across the entire Earth, then it's not going to then one's going to need a model that combines both the dynamics and the space at the same time, and that's going to lead you to more complexity. And then that's harder for it's going to require more explanation for people to understand what goes into yeah. the model. Sure, it will require more inputs, and it's going to be and the workings of it will become less transparent. How do you think maybe take recent advances and you know time that you've been working in? In economics, uh, how have things changed perhaps uh, for the better for, say, the individual investor or the, the individual person working in the economy? Obviously, you know, changes in kind of how we get processed and the volume of information we see is just dramatic. I mean, just the, I just think about when I was in graduate school, I was still submitting computer programs on these punch cards. I was I, even like sometimes punching my own cards versus doing things far you know, much more trivial than stuff I do routinely on laptops now. And I, I mean, that's just a huge difference. Or, or just, or just your ability to uh, access information and how quickly you can do it. I used to spend a lot of time at a library, and now I, I just go online and I, I barely even step foot in a library anymore. It, it's just uh, because there's so many other faster ways to get information. So I think that's enormous. I, I think it's had a big impact on the private sector, on the and, and, and certainly on the academic research as well. And I guess that can have a downside of overload of information. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You have to decide what information you want. It's your, what you want to concentrate on and what you don't. What are you excited about? What are you working on that excites you for the future? So I'm very interested in the following type of problems. This is related to what I talked about before. It's uncertainty, but I'm interested in uncertainty in environments that are inherently complicated. So and I think this is true in a lot of the market settings. If you have an environment that's very complicated and there's uncertainty, you want to try to put probabilities to make assessments of what's going to happen in the future. But given all the complexity, you can't do it along all dimensions. And so there's uncertainty. There's one type of uncertainty is captured by some probability statements, but there's other types of uncertainty that I think are, are of a different type in the sense that we can make up some probabilities, but we're not so confident in what those probabilities are because we don't think we can really credibly put probabilities over everything. So this idea, how do you deal with kind of decision-making in these dynamic environments where there's some complexity is, I think, is a very important and underappreciated topic. So I'm interested in what consequences that has, how those struggles might be reflected in, say, financial markets, uh, because people making everyday investment decisions have to make guesses about a future, and it's a fairly complicated future. So, so this question really shows up there as well. And so how we deal with uncertainty that isn't so easy to quantify in terms of uh, actual probabilities is something that I find very fascinating. And I think it's, and, and the policy implications for this can also be quite important. Um, so Milton Friedman was a monetary economist in part, uh, and he was a long time ago. People were talking about monetary policy, the rules for monetary policy, and they were trying to figure out what good rules for monetary policy were. And Friedman would argue that, well, in the case of monetary economics, there are these so-called long and variable lags. We really don't understand well how changes in the money supply get transmitted into prices and into the, uh, into the rest of the economy. We know that it does, but over exactly what time scale and, and what the dynamics of that is, there's something much less than full knowledge. There's an extra type of uncertainty about not really knowing what that mechanism is. And so therefore, he advocated that instead of trying to have some complicated rule for monetary policy, we ought to make things simple 
because the simple rule is transparent and it's not going to get us into danger by acting on a false uh, on kind of false knowledge. And right now, I think that carries over into how we want to engage in financial market oversight and regulation. I'm a big supporter of simplicity and transparency, in part because it's too complicated to get full understandings of all the workings. Of course, you understand the impulse on the other side in greater oversight because you get the stories of people getting badly hurt. Yeah, this isn't much about greater versus lesser. I mean, we can talk about um, it's more about whether it's simple or complicated. Shortly after the financial crisis, there were lots of discussions about what do we do about this so-called systemic risk, the fact that there's this overall risk in the financial system plays over to the macro economy. And and people in research departments of various central banks uh, would argue, well, this is a really complicated problem. It's going to take a complicated solution. But if it's a really complicated problem that's not fully understand, it's much less clear that it's going to require a complicated solution. In fact, maybe a, a simple policy rules are much better than more complicated ones. And these points have been made even within policymakers. There's some very nice writings by uh, Andy Heldane, who's uh, engaged in financial market oversight in the Bank of England, and uh, also by one of the members of the Board of Governors, Tarullo, has written about the fact that you know we really don't have good models of, of systemic risk, and that we ought to acknowledge that when we're thinking about how to how to respond to a financial market oversight. Do you have an example you give me to help me understand that? Because I think for many people, probably including myself going in here, simple would equate to less oversight. You know, more complicated would be more oversight. You're saying that's not the case. Take something like, like a speed limit. I could say, well, I'm going to have a common speed limit over a very large amount of terrain. I'm going to keep it simple. Uh, that could be high or low. Or else I could say every time there's a little change, I get a, a little bit closer to a community, I'm going to drop it a little bit, or I might raise it a little bit more. I'm going to adjust to a bunch of very different local conditions. And then the person driving the car gets confused. Well, what's the speed limit right here and the like? So, you know, we could talk about going slow versus fast. That's one thing. But the question is, how about the adjustments in between? How often do we adjust or what do we adjust to and the like? And that's where this issue of complexity comes into play. And, of course, this presupposes that the, the regulators, lawmakers, everybody understands. And sometimes there's yeah, a right. lack Absolutely. of understanding for the lack whole. Lack of understanding. Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's one of the reasons why simplicity becomes appealing, because it's a, because everyone understands the rules much better. Hmm. Well, we reached uh, near the end of our conversation. Yeah. Just to, to recap, we're talking with Lars Peter Hansen at the University of Chicago, who's Cache Valley native, USU alum, who has recently been awarded the, or will be awarded, it's announced to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. Uh, so you're, you'll be going when? To Sweden? To, to pick the prize up? Yeah, so we will be there for over a week. Uh, there's a lot of events that take place there. We will leave on, uh, we will literally fly out of Chicago on December 4th. And I believe we get the award. I, the awards are actually given out on December 10th. And you give a speech. I will be giving out about a 30-minute talk at some point in time. I think maybe on the 8th or so. And uh, already space reserved in, in some journals for paper. Uh, from you. Yeah, I, I guess I get to pick. I, I guess I have a little bit of a choice there. I'm far more concerned about writing the paper right now. Yeah, there we go. And I imagine things. But you said things have been a blur. I imagine. So, yeah. congratulations again. Thank you. Lars Peter Hansen is at the University of Chicago. He's the David Rockefeller Distinguished Service Professor in Economics and Statistics and is the inaugural research director for the Becker Friedman Institute. He is Cache Valley native and USU alum. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. That's my conversation with Utah State University alum Lars Peter Hansen, uh, winner of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics. Our thanks to Professor Hansen. We are uh, somewhat pressed for time, and so we won't be able to get in uh, Stephen McIntyre's comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook site. But you can go there, Utah Public Radio Facebook uh, page, to read uh, Stephen McIntyre's comment. Next up is NPR media correspondent David Fokenflick. His new book is Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. Rupert Murdoch's fascinating figure and very important figure in our time. Uh, maybe you could trace briefly uh, how he rose from, a, I guess, a small paper in Adelaide, Australia, to, to the empire that he has today. Yeah, and Adelaide, you know, it's worth remembering. Murdoch's from Melbourne, it's one of the biggest and wealthiest cities in Australia. Adelaide is this kind of forgotten city on the southern coast of Australia. He had a single daily. Uh, he always felt that his father was uh, cheated. His father had been a very uh, well-regarded uh, political journalist and newspaper executive in Melbourne, and that his father had been cheated out of an ownership stake in a couple other papers, and he was very resentful of uh, his father's former colleagues who had seemed maneuvered to get uh, to unravel those ownership stakes. Uh, uh, which had a sort of kind of question mark over them anyway. And he kind of nursed that grievance, and he said, I, I want to get out of Adelaide. I want to build something bigger. I want to make a national footprint for myself. My father was never given the respect he was due as a journalist. Uh, and that kind of sense of grievance, I wouldn't say it's the same as Rosebud and Citizen Kane, but that sense of grievance uh, animated him and continues to do so to this day, where he sees uh, regulations as uh, oppressive and as uh, uh, unwarrantedly restricting his vision, his ability to make offerings directly to the public, to the customer, to consumers. Uh, and, you know, he has a point. You know, the, the broadcast industry in all three of the great English-speaking countries in which he's such a presence, Australia, uh, uh, the U.K., and, and the U.S., you know, they had a somewhat sclerotic system, which was designed to exclude and keep out others. He kind of forced his way to the table in the U.S. with Fox uh, Broadcast and in Britain with what's now called B Sky B. He did it with Sky Broadcasting. He lost an offer. People were very skeptical of him in Britain, even after he owned four major newspapers there. Uh, and he lost the ability, uh, to, or he lost a bidding war to get uh, assigned uh, one of the first uh, satellite channels and, and systems in the U.K. So he set up shop in Luxembourg and just beamed a signal from the sky uh, down to England and just sold the little satellite dishes on which people could buy it. It didn't occur to the British that he would just, you know, take advantage of being in Europe, uh, you know, not so very many hundreds of miles away. So, you know, that was uh, uh, innovation by circumvention. He just found a way to get around things. In this country, he's often, uh, had, you know, on occasion he's had to sell uh, properties because of regulations, but oftentimes he's pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable under the law, occasionally just ignoring regulations until regulators were convinced that they should uh, uh, make the regulations accommodate his reality rather than vice versa. So he's been a guy of tremendous energy. I think he has shaken up particularly the broadcast uh, industries in ways that you could argue are in some ways quite good. He's expanded offerings. He has, you know, channels that are highly successful at Fox Broadcast, the FX channel, as well as Fox News, one of the, not just the, the very top cable news channel, but one of the top channels of all cable. Uh, you know, that's an impressive uh, uh, feeling of accomplishment. And a lot of it is uh, based in part on this idea that others are out to keep him contained, and he's going to show them otherwise. 
you uh, you talked to Ken Chandler, who held various posts at the uh, the New York Post, and he talks about he, he says this is quote definitely there's self censorship. Sure. Well, one of the things that he said, you know, the New York Post, like the Times of London, like the Australian uh, uh, national daily. Uh, general interest newspaper in Australia that's the, sort of the most prestigious paper in that country. Uh, you know, some of his papers just have never made a cent for him, not a single cent. And, uh, you know, he keeps them uh, for a variety of reasons, but it means that the people who edit those properties are very aware that they'd better produce a publication that, that the big guy at the top of the pyramid wants to read. And nowhere is that more true than his tabloids. He leaves alone you know, the Wall Street Journal and, uh, and the Times of London to a greater degree. But, you know, his tabloids, he, he said under oath, you know, if you want to know what I think about something, you should read The Sun in London. And that really applies to the New York Post, too. It, it may not be what he's dictated by any stretch, but it'll be, you know, close to his heart and his instincts, or else the people uh, running those headlines and those stories are going to find themselves with uh, uh, a different job pretty soon. And uh, Ken Chandler said, look, every day I have to think about what Rupert would want to read in print, because by any logical business scenario, the New York Post shouldn't be open anymore. There are several hundred jobs that depend upon his being pleased with what he reads. And similarly, David Yellen, uh, who was editor of The Sun for a number of years for Murdoch in London, said, you know, he doesn't have to call me for me to hear his voice in, in my head every morning when I wake up. I know exactly what he has to think. I know exactly what he's going to be pleased by, and I go out and try to do it. Now, there, I, I recall there's a lot of heartburn when he bought the Wall Street Journal. That, so in, in terms of the Wall Street Journal and the Times of London, is it hands-off? Is, it, is there a wall between, uh, between his politics, say, and, and, the, uh, and the news gathering of, of those two prestigious papers? No, I wouldn't say there is a wall. I would say that uh, that he understands the fact that if he wants to read the, reach the more highly educated uh, thought leaders who read the Wall Street Journal as opposed to the Sun, uh, you know, he's got to uphold the, the prestige and brand of the paper, which has been built up over the decades as a place of incredibly fair-minded and sophisticated journalism. You know, under his tenure, since acquiring it in 2007, you can say the following things. Uh, Murdoch's uh, has basically ensured that they haven't had to lay off hundreds of people, which they might well have under their previous owners who just didn't have the deep pockets that he does. Uh, they have a more uh, a broader uh, international report. Uh, they've done more intensive political coverage. They pulled back some from their deep looks at certain issues of finance and business, but they've done a lot of enterprise work on that as well. At the same time, he appointed two top editors, Robert Thompson, who's like a surrogate son to him, a fellow Australian who shares the same birthday, several decades apart, uh, and uh, Gerard Baker, uh, who was uh, Thompson's deputy and is now editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and they came to it sharing Murdoch's conviction that even though the editorial pages of the journal are far more conservative than Mr. Murdoch himself, that the news report itself was actually somewhat left of center. Now, that may surprise people. I think of the journal as having been over the years one of the fairest and most conscientiously reported uh, newspapers in the country. But they were of the belief that the reporters of the journal shared the liberal mindset that they attribute to reporters throughout mainstream news organizations, such as the New York Times or NBC or CBS or NPR, or pick another one at random, and that they were going to pull, you know, make sure that, that they questioned stories in such a way that they were fairer. Now, 
I identify, you know, several dozen or a couple dozen instances in the book where there were stories with political implications or about issues of public import on which reporters and editors were convinced that a thumb was put on the scale, that there weren't just questions being asked, which after all is what editors are supposed to do about stories, uh, but that they were being manipulated to fall more right of center than perhaps they should on their journalistic merits. Now, the reporters at the journal are fair-minded enough that they think it's legitimate to raise those questions about, are we being even-handed? Are we looking at this story from the right end of the telescope? Are we, you know, providing the texture and context that we need to? And sometimes Thompson would do things like say, listen, you can't just quote an academic at a university without making sure that he or she's not also active in Democratic Party politics. That seems to me a legitimate thing to do if somebody's served as a state, you know, political uh, a party volunteer or official or something, you know, that may well in certain circumstances be relevant to a story. On a lot of other occasions, reporters and editors felt, you know what, they've done this in an unfair manner. Mm. And so that influence was done. In one other element, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, the journal uh, hasn't been run to promote Murdoch's uh, business instincts uh, interests by and large, but they're very, uh, journalists are very sensitive to the fact that Murdoch is uh, invested a lot of money in a new educational initiative, and there have been moments where things in which uh, that educational division uh, has an interest, the the connection hasn't been disclosed in their news articles. And secondly, at the height of the hacking scandal two-plus years ago in the U.K., you know, the journalists thought this is a moment where we have to prove that we're independent of our owner, you know, where we're going to do aggressive reporting. This is a story of great national moment in the U.K., and uh, we're going to show some enterprise on it. They came up with a story that could have been deeply damaging to Murdoch's interests and to Murdoch's executives. And Robert Thompson, at that time the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal, uh, basically intervened a half dozen times to try to kill it and then tried to set the bar so high for publication that his reporters and editors were convinced that it was effectively trying to do the same thing. Now, to be fair, that story did run in print in late August of 2011, uh, weeks after uh, you know the reporters had set out to report it. Uh, it was watered down. The, the, the key element of the story was pushed down from the first paragraph to the ninth paragraph. But, you know, people in Britain understood its uh, relevance and import, and it formed the heart of one of the uh, allegations and criminal charges set out in the courts in London last week. But, you know, that was a moment at which the newspaper, I think, uh, deserves credit for publishing it, but that credit goes to the reporters and editors at much lower level than the top editors who really fought bullheadedly to make sure that appeared in print. Uh, the uh, the editor-in-chief, I don't think, gets credit for that. And at a key moment, he tried to protect his mentor and his uh, his patron. I wonder if I have you talk a bit about Fox News. Uh, I, and I know it's probably fair to say that at least some of the consumers of Fox News see it as necessary. They, they see, uh, you know, the other sports sources of media, at least the, the traditional ones, as being too liberal. There needed to be a corrective. In comes Fox News. How does Rupert Murdoch see it? Uh, Murdoch sees uh, Fox uh, in its reporting side every bit as, uh, as you say, uh, the uh, counterbalance to the reflexive liberalism of uh, CBS and the New York Times and everyone else. And uh, I've got to say that, uh, uh, you know, he truly believes that uh, that these were news organizations set up to appeal to a sensibility that is uh, only serving coastal elites, 
you know, cultural liberals who all see things from the same uh, vantage point, drink the same wines, uh, you know, send their kids to the same schools. Uh, and there was kind of a populist uh, center-right sensibility to Murdoch that, that was offended by this. And he pulled the, the New York Post, you know, which is a fairly culturally conservative newspaper in many ways, you know, was a liberal one when he bought it. He promised not to change it. That was a promise that makes no sense in retrospect and probably made no sense at the time, you know, is what he needed to say to get ownership from uh, Dorothy Schiff, the owner at that time, whom he charmed greatly. And, uh, you know, he proceeded to change it into a very different publication. Uh, he sees it as sort of uh, dealing with the far too deferential to authority, far too, you know, knee-jerkly liberal places like the New York Times. And, uh, and, and he feels Fox serves the same purpose in that regard. Fox is more conservative than he is, but he thinks of it as a counterbalance to the way the others operate. And he also says, look, if consumers like it, we're providing a public service. This is something they value. And it's also, uh, you know, it's, it's something that was needed. It was a niche that was not filled. And it's, it, it's, it is greatly influenced uh, uh, either in opposition or in mimicry other news outlets, you know, MSNBC never made a profit until several years ago it decided to bank hard left in a way that was sort of an homage to what Ailes did with, with Fox News. And uh, there's a wink about there being no, you know, a deep separation between news and opinion shows. I think you see similar story threads, even if a slightly different decibel level and a slightly different approach in uh, some of those shows. But, you know, uh, to be fair to Fox, you know, it is legitimate to find other stories and other ways of telling those stories. The real question about Fox has nothing to do with Murdoch, which is the question of whether they're cherry-picking facts or distorting facts. And there have been a number of critics, both uh, journalistic and ideological, that have, you know, suggested enough instances in which that's the case that you could ask whether that carelessness is, is uh, a, a glitch or intentional. But, you know, this is the cable news business. It's quick. It's glib. For the two uh, channels that are clearly ideological, you know, it's in service of a point of view rather than ultimately figuring out what the facts are. Just have a few minutes left. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, about the hacking scandal. And uh, what do you think it, it means? Is, is this just high stakes journalism in the U.K. or, or does it have meaning beyond that? Well, I think if you think of Murdoch having, uh, you know, global reach on six continents, but particularly in these three great English-speaking nations, you should think of the, the news outlets almost as cousins that share DNA and then grew up in different towns, you know. Uh, they evolve a little differently. You know, Fox News' model is not based on incredible uh, scoops. It's based on hiring people who are great talkers and great uh, advocates for their beliefs and great arguers. And, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, like commercial radio hosts, which Sean Hannity, an exceptionally uh, uh, successful one as well, uh, and putting them on the air. And that's the model. And you pay somebody some millions of dollars to do that. And if he talks for an hour or two, that saves you having to pay a ton of reporters to go out and cover the globe. CNN's model of, of cable news is much more expensive than Fox's. Fox makes much more money than CNN, even though CNN makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So, you know, this is, uh, they don't need to hack people in order to have great arguments on that channel. Uh, there is no evidence that the New York Post has been taking part in this in any great sense. It's just a different different approach. But uh, in Great Britain, you know, you have a national newspaper market rather than a local one. Uh, the U.K. is... Uh, pretty populous, but it's pretty compact. 
So, you know, you have, I, I can't remember if it's nine or 11 at the moment, but call it 11 national newspapers competing. And you think of London, and it's as though it's a kind of collision of Hollywood and Wall Street and Washington all in the same place. You know, their political, financial, and celebrity figures are all there in the same city and the environs. So, you know, there's an incredible madcap chase for stories of these figures. And, you know, there's an inversion there. It's not the broadcasters who are the loudest. The BBC and Murdoch Sky News are actually rather tempered in their approach. And uh, it's the tabloid newspapers in particular, but even some of the prestigious ones that are much more brawling and opinionated and, uh, and uh, freewheeling. Just a minute left. Uh, what do you think the legacy of Rupert Murdoch is? I think he's a guy who's underwritten a lot of uh, uh, terrific journalism over the years. I think he's moved uh, the center of discourse in journalism to the right. And at the same time, uh, you know, in separately, he's made it a much crueler exercise. He has turned people's lives into sport, sometimes people who weren't in the public eye to begin with. Uh, his tabloids have seem to have an almost uh, agnostic or amoral approach where it's not really you know, it's not that they are hoping to hurt people, it's that they don't care or haven't cared. And uh, he has uh, refined and I think in some ways perfected that formula. It has inspired others. There are other publications who seek to replicate it or at least uh, echo it, but there's nothing quite as pure as that. And the concentration of his holdings, you know, 65 to 70 percent of uh, the news, major newspaper circulation in Australia, you know, well over a third of newspaper circulation in the U.K., uh, you know, that's an incredible concentration of one voice. And I got to say, it's one voice that defines that media empire in a way that you can't say for any other major media company that, that's present here in the U.S. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. No, no, no. My pleasure. Thank you. That's NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. His book is Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. My name is Francis Batista. I'm 68 years old, and I'm speaking with my friend Cyrus Mejia. And my name is Cyrus Mejia, and I'm 66, and we are here talking about the beginnings of Best Friends Animal Society, which Francis and I are both co-founders of. And Francis, you were the one who actually found the property where Best Friends is currently located in, over near Kanab, Utah. And uh, it's a beautiful piece of the property. People come there and just are astounded at the beauty of it. But how did it happen that you found that place? Well, I was particularly looking for a place where you, me, and the rest of our friends could set up a sanctuary for the animals, really. So located this place on the map in Kanab, drove up there, and it was spectacular. It was just really beautiful. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. This place is just another world. But it's probably not for sale, and we probably couldn't afford it, even if it was. And so I located the owner, and they were kind of stuck with this thing, and they wanted to get rid of it. So we were able to get into it for... $5,000 down, which was just unbelievable. This was 1984. Obviously, it cost more than that, but that's kind of sealed the deal. The rest, I guess, is history. We uh, landed there and started doing our work with the animals and became the largest animal sanctuary in the country. It was at one point, we, we, we moved there, started Best Friends, and we, we relocated some animals we'd already rescued and were down in Arizona, moved them up there. And at some point, we started getting a whole lot more animals. And one of the reasons for that was we took on the animal control. Well, well the way it happened was this. We, um, 
as you say, we arrived, and amongst the, the group of us, we had about 200 animals. One of our dogs wandered off. This was shortly after we got there. And uh, one of our colleagues uh, went looking for his dog, which had been lost, and he went to the local pound, which was basically a tin roof shed in a field in back of the airport. And it looked like a little sort of concentration camp. You know, it had a brick wall, fence around it, mm. corrugated roof, baking heat. Uh, once a week, a vet would come over from St. George and put every animal that was there to, to sleep. Mm -hmm. And we thought, my God, this place is horrible. And anything we can do has to be better than this. And I went down <laughs> to uh, City Hall and said, oh, is the mayor in? No, he's home. So they told me where he lived. And I went over there. And he was out watering his front garden. So the mayor, hi. You know, uh, my name is Francis Batista. You know, we just acquired this property up the canyon. And, um, well, we'd like to do animal control. And he looked at the flowers, looked at me and said, okay. <laughs> so that was it. I mean, we could have been making sausages. You know, he was not remotely interested. You know, you want to spend your money on stray animals, uh, go ahead. You know, we thought, well, how bad could this be? You know, this is a little tiny town. You know, we can handle this. In a couple of years, we had like 1,200 and then soon to be 15, close to 2,000 dogs, cats, horses, farm animals. And, you know, we weren't thinking this when we, we hadn't no. thought this through. <laughs> so we figured, well, you know, we have to get real here and we have to create an organization. Otherwise, we're going to be a bad news story. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yes, yes. So then that was kind of the beginning of it. And that yeah. was sort of, that became Best Friends Animal Sanctuary, which became Best Friends Animal Society, which is now a national, one of the three largest uh, animal welfare organizations in the country. Yes. We got together with them and the, the National Geographic produced the show Dogtown. So what was that like having a, a, a TV crew following our people around every day? <laughs> well, it was interesting. It was kind of crazy. But one of the things that was interesting there was that the fact that just shortly after that began, you know, Best Friends took on the bulk of the Michael Vick dogfighting dogs, the ones that were rescued from his dogfighting ring. So we had not the majority of them, but we took more than anyone else. We had 22 of the least adoptable, hardest to place, most behaviorally challenged or whatever of those uh, Michael Vick's pit bulls. And we still have some of them. A lot have been adopted. But that was part of that National Geographic narrative. Every dog is an individual and every dog should be related to as an individual. Prior to this, uh, any dog that was found in some fight situation was regarded as damaged goods. And what we found was that most of the dogs basically cream puffs. Mm -hmm. They were frightened. Um, they were unsocialized. But they weren't bad dogs. And most of them have now been, you know, the court ordered that they had to pass their canine good citizen test before they could be adopted. Um, many of those have. The abuse that those animals suffered is just unspeakable. And so, so dog fight victims are no longer categorically regarded as damaged goods. And they are given the opportunity to be individually evaluated, trained, placed, whatever, and the best that can be done for them. Sometimes nothing can be done for them, but at least they're given the chance now. And that, again, is the result of that work with uh, the Michael Vick dogs. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org.